Hello, and welcome to Channel 5 Look It In Film. I love movies. Uh, I can tell you that um, the movies are back. Cut! From G2V. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of our listeners through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash G2V. Hello everyone, I'm Scott Woodard. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And welcome to the G2V Podcast, the official podcast of G2V Productions. Visit G2VPodcast.com for this and other podcasts, plus loads of exciting pop culture content. In your neighborhood, who are you going to call? And if you like what we're doing, please help us out by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash G2V. That's right now. On this spirited episode of the podcast. See what I did there? I see. <laughs> Arnold and I are putting on our proton packs and climbing into Ecto-1 to chat about Ghostbusters. And we're done. <laughs> Now, I've been looking forward to this. Well, first of all, we haven't done as many uh, G2V episodes as we used to do, but that's, you know, just the way it is. And uh, this was a perfect opportunity, it seemed, to jump back into one, because not only was this exceptionally fun, just putting that right out there at the very beginning, but uh, a movie that generated an extraordinary amount of attention and controversy in the pop culture world. And uh, everybody else is weighing in on it, so why shouldn't we? And talk about why we liked the movie, why we enjoyed it as much as we did, uh, why it's not the heralding of the end of all things. Uh, that <laughs> our, apparently our our childhoods are intact. Yeah, our childhoods are intact. No, the end of all things coming from a very different direction, but not from the Ghostbusters. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and there's so many reasons why. And as I was sitting in the theater and watching the movie. I was already building the catalog of reasons why I thought this was just such a delightful thing. And uh, and full disclosure, uh, early on when the news was coming out about it, I was hopeful that this would turn out well. But as so many others have pointed out online, the early trailers gave some people pause. Now, this is a very sticky issue, and obviously we'll talk about this in detail, but... I'm not saying because of the fact that they decided to do an all-female team. That generated controversy from people who have, I don't know, less than half a brain cell um, or, you know, are not actually human in any standard scientific way. Uh, morons. Cavemen. Yeah. But what I did have a problem with was that the early trailers to me just didn't look like they were that funny. It looked like it wasn't going to be that much fun. Now, you, you right away from the trailer, you already thought, oh, this looks great. I'm looking forward to seeing it, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was going at it with a very open mind. I, I wasn't one of those people who immediately said, oh, God, you know, they're going to ruin Ghostbusters. Because to be perfectly honest, and we'll talk about this a little later, um, I'm not a huge fan of Ghostbusters 2 by any stretch. But nope. Ghostbusters, the, the first one, the only one in my world, <laughs> um, is one of the greatest movies of all time. So, mm -hmm. for me, I was totally fine with them doing something new. And then on top of that, I thought the, the cast was great. Mm -hmm. And I also trust Paul Feig because mm -hmm. I love so much of the stuff that he's done over the years. 
Um, full disclosure, I, I'm friends with Paul to some degree. I've worked with him um, face-to-face on a couple of projects in the past. And uh, and I trusted him. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, th- I thought going into it, I, maybe I was just looking at the stuff that was genuinely funny in the trailer and sort of ignoring the stuff that people had issues with. I know yeah. there were some people who were a little concerned about even sort of racial things in regards yes. to Leslie. So, um, we can oh, talk absolutely. about that too. But. Yeah, I mean, because we'll talk a lot more about one of the most deplorable aspects of the Ghostbusters fallout, which is the way in which some of the most... Uh, awful, inhuman, and hateful people on the planet decided to make her a target for no reason other than that they're soulless monsters. Yeah. You know, the very kind of creatures that the Ghostbusters should be capturing and sending back into hell. <laughs> but we'll talk about that. But I, I do agree. That is one of the things I reacted to in the initial trailers was that it seemed, you know, a lot of us were talking about, okay, as much as we love Ghostbusters, you can look back at that first film and go, well, Ernie Hudson shows up in like the second act. He's the one guy in the team that's higher. He's not a scientist. He kind of played a little bit of too much of a potentially standard black guy sidekick role. He was a part of the team. He was great. And even if you discount two, at the very least, it was nice. He remained a part of the team, and he always seemed like he was a valuable member. But there was sort of a cliched aspect to his role in it that, well, you think, okay, well, fine. That's the 1980s, though. Things are going to be different now. And that first trailer came out. And it was Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, and Kate McKinnon as the scientists. And then all of a sudden, Leslie Jones' character comes in. She's like, but I know the city. And we see her working in the subway. And it's like, oh my god, are they seriously going to do she's the streetwise character that doesn't have book learning, but she's going to be able to help them with the thing? It it It's so completely inaccurately and poorly sold us on her character in that trailer. There was so much wonderful stuff in the way the character of Patty Tolan played out in the actual film that totally resolved any issues anybody would have had with that. But the trailer made it look uncomfortably cliched, you know, like a standard trope. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that threw me, and I know quite a lot of other people, is like, my God, are they really going to do that? They didn't. In fact, the movie went out of its way not to do that. There was stuff that was beautiful about how they didn't. And we'll certainly, I'll point out a few. But so there was that. And that just made me think, oh, you know, with all the craziness that's going on around this movie, this movie needs to be good just to to shut all those people up who have no sense at all and are saying, why are women ghostbusters? This movie needs to show them, or rather it doesn't need to show them anything because they're not going to learn anything different. They're not going to change their minds. But what it needs to show is that it's a success and that they are just going to have to go away back to their caves and troll other people. (laughs) You know, there was another thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was another thing about um, one of the early trailers which I think caused some trouble. And that was the trailer that I think the very first title card comes up and says 30 years ago. Yes, yes. Which that implied was the first one. that it was, was it a sequel? What were we going to see mm-hmm. here? Is this yeah. the same universe? So yeah. that I think confused things a lot as well. Absolutely, yeah. And the fact this is going to be just a, a complete restart which they were very open about from the beginning until that trailer came out and people were like, wait a minute, what? Um, they were pretty open about the fact they were starting over. And like you said earlier, I I love the first movie. It's one of those movies where I've seen it a million times. If it's on, it stays on. Uh, but I also, it's maybe it's strange, but I don't have the emotional investment in it to the extent that I didn't want to see something new and frankly, as far as I'm concerned, as soon as Harold Ramis died, any chance at all of trying to revisit that universe again, you might as well just drop it. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan Aykroyd tried for so long, 
in so many different ways to try to get everybody back together again. There are all the endless stories about Bill Murray, of course, and his his uh, inexhaustible energy to avoid doing things, and that's his choice. But then once Harold Ramis died, it was like, well, that's it now. There will never be a Ghostbusters 3. It's It's time to try something different and at least hopefully give some kids now a chance to really get excited about strapping on a proton pack and playing Ghostbusters. And that's one of the things that I think this movie does exceptionally well, that it was so much fun. And uh, I'm actually uh, only disappointed now in the sense that it didn't come out of the gate quite as powerful as I think the movie deserved. But it was up against uh, a kid's animated film. Uh, was it The Secret Life of Pets? Uh, and that in its opening weekend and came in at number two. And it's very difficult to overcome the kids animated movie in, in any given weekend like that. So, but it's kind of a shame because this was so much fun. The one thing I am happy about though, is that Sony has already made it very clear without saying uh, as directly as there is in fact a green light that they are committed to continuing with this. So by the time you walk out of the theater at the end of this movie, you're waiting for Ghostbusters two to be made anyway. So, and not just because of the little, button after the credits <laughs> no not just because of that but but i i think uh oh, we're gonna by the way we're gonna talk about everything so uh you spoiler know you, alert. spoiler yeah so <laughs> scott is referring to the marvel film-esque post-credits thing so if you walk out of the theater at the end credits which never makes any sense to me at all but seemed even less so in this movie because the movie even made the end credits exciting they used an entire dance sequence with Chris Hemsworth's uh, character that, from what we know, was originally going to appear in the film itself, but then was cut um, to try to make the flow a little better at the end there. But they then wound up using it in the end credits, and I thought it was a much more effective thing there. It was fun and a nice way to play out, and then they used a lot of other stuff. So there was a reason to sit there through all the end credits and watch. And yet people were getting up and walking out. I oh, yeah. didn't understand. <laughs> Clear in the theater. And then at the very end, you see them all working and Leslie Jones is listening to the tape recorder. And all we get at the very end right there is the last line. She says, what's Zool? And when the movie ended, by the way, so we were in the theater, the movie ended, we heard a little boy behind us saying that i don't remember the exact words but this is a little kid i don't know maybe six seven something i don't know and uh the first thing he said when she said zool was that's the villain from the first movie (laughs) (laughs) and it's like this kid already knows ghostbusters all ghostbusters it's like the kids that i used to talk to we used to do tours of the museum and i'd do the star wars exhibit and they and i'd ask them about prequels and they'd say i like all the movies it's like kids don't have these kind of boundaries they just like all the stuff He's already seen Ghostbusters. Maybe his parents put him through those first, you know, and, and he got the Zool reference right away. So we've got that as like a little hint, although um, they've already said that that doesn't mean necessarily the sequel will be that. They just thought it would be a cute thing to throw in to show that the world will continue. And, uh, and I like that. But, but uh, I'm just eager to see this team back again. If you're all alone, pick up the phone and call. Maybe we should step back a little bit. So as we were saying, and we don't want to dwell on the negativity too much, but one of the main reasons I think both of us were really excited to do an episode specifically about this movie is that it's a joyful, 
um, exciting, just energetic sci-fi adventure that feels like the kind of movies we grew up with in certain respects and is giving a new generation a chance to find characters to embrace and want to be like and, and, uh, and play. Uh, and at the same time, it was a film that was relentlessly attacked before even a frame of it had been seen by people online who were adamant that how dare you replace four male characters with four female characters. Lunacy. As long as the movie was entertaining, who cares who's what? It doesn't matter. Uh, and when we both went to see it, um, I saw it on a weekend. You saw it, what, just like a day afterward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that fun was the word we probably both had in our heads quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's genuinely fun. I mean, you can't help but smile and enjoy yourself. Now, what are some of the things specifically we can point to that are uh, – things we particularly enjoyed about. Now, one of the things you brought up right from the beginning was that um, the people that they got on board here are all funny. They're all talented. It's a great team. And maybe we should talk a little bit about some of them and, and uh, standouts. I know one in particular that's going to be... <laughs> just start talking about Holtzman. What? All right, let's just start talking about Holtzman. <laughs> With all due respect to Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones, Chris Hemsworth, and everything. All right, fine. Forget all that. So, Kate McKinnon, let's spend the next hour talking Show about stealer. this. Jillian Holtzman, I even just tweeted right before we were recording because I knew we were, we were going to be recording, but I and I fully believe this. I think that Jillian Holtzman is now... My favorite new like sci-fi action adventure hero that I've seen in a movie in a long time. I can't remember the last time I walked out of a movie not just happy to have seen the film and enjoyed a lot of the stuff in it, but wanting to see more of one specific character. And in fact, one of the things we talked about when we left the theater was how much I'd like to at least partly be involved in developing something where you just gave Kate McKinnon the lead role. And the thing I'd come up with was Kate McKinnon as a steampunky type, Jillian Holtzman type character back in the Old West fighting zombies. I want that movie now. (laughs) I want Kate McKinnon in every movie. And as Holtzman, it's not just a case of scene stealing. She is... Just a phenomenal character. So exciting to watch. There there are so many actors in every movie and TV show who may be like A-list people, but if you've ever watched stuff as often as like, you know, we watch things over and over that we love, you start to notice the actors that really commit and are a part of it, and you start to notice the ones that actually tune out. You can see in their faces they're not involved. The example I always give is I spent years watching Friends TV show, and Courtney Cox is one of the stars of Friends. But if you'd ever just uh, check out a repeat of Friends sometime, put it on, and watch a scene set in the living room where all of them are together in the living room talking, if you keep your eyes on her, you can see the exact moments where her eyes go dead and she tunes out until her next line comes up. She's not there. She's not in the moment. She's not the character. Every time Kate McKinnon was in a scene, even if she was in the background, she was doing something. She was Holtzman the whole time. She she wasn't trying necessarily to steal the scene. She wasn't being the Steve McQueen of... Ghostbusters, but she was doing something, and she was alive as a character, and it's one of the things I always respect. I thought she was just phenomenal. You know, another thing that I really like about her is actually, it carries over to, I think, the designers, and in particular, sort of hair, makeup, costume, because one thing about this entire cast is that we have four very unique silhouettes. Each one of those characters, in just an outline, you can immediately tell who they are. 
And that was one of the things I thought was great because they brought that to life as well. I mean, the the character that she has with her crazy hair, her clothes, her style, everything about each one of those characters stands out so beautifully. I think that's an excellent observation, yeah. And and the interesting thing, too, is that after a certain point, you have to very quickly dismiss any notion of mapping these four to the original four. That's another thing that has to be let go of immediately because early on there was also that idea. We saw pictures of her with her teased up hair and her glasses. It was like, oh, so she's going to be the Egon. And, uh, and it's one of the conversations we had leaving the theater was that what really struck me about her character was that it completely destroyed any notion of trying to do that, which I think is a disservice to the new movie anyway because these are four very different characters playing different roles in the dynamic of their team and there's no point in mapping them but what I think was interesting was that her look suggested something but one of the things that I was saying after we saw the movie was that at different times in the movie I felt that Holtzman basically embodied just about every one of the original trio the three that started all in the first film because she does have Egon's uh, scientific know-how and tendency toward uh, technological jargon and getting wrapped up in that. She has Venkman's uh, level of humor and that irreverence to everything, putting her leg up on the mayor's desk and you know not showing any deference to authority and just being completely her own person. But to me, that always that that kept coming up too was one of my favorite little sidelines in the original Ghostbusters is when Venkman introduces Ray to the, to the crowd at the end in New York and says, will you please, Ray stands the heart of the Ghostbusters. And to me, it was like Holtzman's the heart of this team too. She's all of them. And it, it's just amazing to me what a fully rounded character she is. I've actually seen people say they thought some of her shtick was too much and that, oh, she's, she's trying too hard. First of all, I didn't think she had to try too hard to be funny. She was fine at that. But what struck me, too, was that she just instantly was the core of the team to me. And that's not to take away from the others, because I thought they all did an excellent job. In fact, maybe we should talk about Leslie Jones, too, because I was saying earlier, that's one of the things that looked like it could be a problem, but it wasn't. What do you think of of, uh, Leslie Jones' Patty? Uh, I thought she was great. I mean, she was an instantly likable character. She was a lot of fun. Um, There were a few moments where I got a little nervous with certain jokes, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I still feel that that whole gag about, you know, how come they didn't catch her? Was it a lady thing or a race thing? Yeah. I think that was it didn't need to be in there. Yeah. Stuff like that. But for the most part, I thought her character was great, especially when you find out that it's not that she just knows her way around the streets. She knows the history. She knows everything about the city. And I thought that was really, really nice touch. Yeah, it was, that's that's excellent. And as much as I was saying that McKinnon's character, <laughs> I just said, by the way, we shouldn't be mapping them, but I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> well, I'm trying to do it as a, a point of, you know, expressing how much I appreciated their characters. So I apologize that I'm doing it that way. But they gave her all of the sort of exposition and knowledge and uh, understanding of history that Ray had in the first movies. So she was really carrying the weight of all of the intelligence of the team, maybe not necessarily with the technology, but with the history and, and how to sort out the mystery they're dealing with. And I thought that was wonderful. And to me, what I was hinting at earlier, the moment that I felt was so heartwarming was the bit toward the end, and, and damn, I, I just forget entirely the setup at one point, was um, 
that she comes up with a crucial strategic idea at the end, and they follow through and they say something about how, you know, she's great or whatever. And I, I forget what the exact setup is, but her just response is, I'm a ghostbuster. And it was it was almost like just, uh, and I'm going to just say it and you deal with it the way you want. But what I love about that line was it just felt like a directed f*** you to everybody in the audience, mm-hmm. you know, who very much deserves that f*** you. You know, because she is a Ghostbuster. It was already determined when the film was being made, so shut up. <laughs> and and there's another aspect of it, too. I like the fact that so much of the backlash happened during production of the film that they were able to incorporate a few nods to that. But I never felt like it was in a mean-spirited or um, overt or, or unwarranted way. There were little bits and pieces here and there that I might not even be right, that some of them might not even be a response. It just might be coincidental, but they felt like it, and they felt like nicely pointed commentary on the situation. That was one of them, which I think was a, a beautiful capper to like her character arc. And it may have had nothing to do with that. There was, however, the one we know for certain they put in, which was the YouTube comment thing. Yeah. Which was great, where they see the YouTube comments. It's like, oh, don't don't look at that. Don't go there. <laughs> and that we know they put in for that reason. And that was also good. And there are a few that I have to wonder if maybe they put in uh, before or after. Like, for instance, the fact that the way to actually shoot down Rowan was to shoot him in the dick. Um and I think they don't they even have the line where uh, one of them asked Melissa McCarthy, is that where you were planning to shoot? And she's like, oh, no, yeah, that's it. So so there's that. And here's the thing. Oh, and here's the thing I wanted to share with you since we were going to talk about this that I was so interested. So I, we've both seen this movie four million times, right? The original. Mm-hmm. We've both watched it over and over again. We recite dialogue. I can, it's one of those movies that's burned into my brain. I can picture everybody's expression. I know how the pacing works, everything. So I'm watching it again a little while ago because all the channels now have been running one and two, you know, in an endless loop as the new one was coming out. And I see all the controversy going on and there are all these morons talking about all oh, the women and all they're going to do is make men jokes and, and this and that. And, and you wondered, you know, how these people live with themselves at night, you know, as they plan to vote for Trump. So um, <laughs> they're hero. And, and I'm watching all that. And then I'm watching Ghostbusters again and it gets to the end. So they're on the roof, and they're about to face Gozer, and they're pulling out the sticks, and Murray does the whole thing about, got your stick? Make them hard. And it's all dick jokes. And then he says, let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. And and as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking to myself, um, damn, this entire moment is misogynist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, not in a way that I ever felt was deliberate or that, you know, certainly growing up and then watching the movie over the years, not in a way that ever felt like, oh, this is horrible. But then, you know, you get to a certain point, you look back at something, you think, oh, I'm seeing it a little differently now. Yeah. And and once I thought that, I thought to myself, you know, I think this team is entitled to shoot a ghost in the dick in <laughs> this movie. <laughs> I think they've earned the right. Well, they could name for the flat top this time. There wasn't one. They're right. That's right. <laughs> they had to go somewhere else. So, uh, so I guess there's also a. Um, for me, there was also an element of realizing that things that I've also loved or respected or appreciated in the past. There's more to some of those things than we're aware of at the time, and 
to just dismiss something as being like, oh, this is politically correct or all oh, this is that. It's like you're not you're not really looking at the bigger picture here or or what was actually going on in the past as well. There's a lot more to it. And what matters ultimately is that this movie did an exceptional job of introducing a new team of characters that we then instantly like, want to see more of. Uh, the humor was there right from the opening scene with the guy doing the tour through the house gets, slips in a few snide little jokes that were excellent of course i was amused because i like he plays a character on silicon valley and i'm a huge fan of that show uh-huh right <laughs> and uh and and speaking of that a great cast supporting the main team i mean we got andy garcia showing up as the mayor <laughs> who doesn't want to be connected to the mayor of jaws i like that bit. Yeah. Charles Dance doesn't have much to do, but all he really has to do is show up and look dead-eyed at somebody, and that's what he does really well. <laughs> and by the way, watch that scene with him to get your glimpse of Harold Ramis, uh, bust of Harold Ramis yeah, at the college, which is nice. the only way. It was nice, yeah. Uh, Cecily Strong, who's another Saturday Night Live um, stalwart, and it was nice to see her. She didn't really get a lot to do that's all that comical, but as the support for the mayor, it was nice to see her in it. It's always nice to see Ed Begley Jr. turn up. Ed Begley Jr. seems to now be becoming the sort of guy that shows up to give a comedy film its imprint of credibility. <laughs> like, whether it's one of Christopher Guest's improv films or one of the millions of other things he's done, it's like, when Ed Begley shows up, it's like, now we know this officially enters the canon of comedy because Ed Begley has been here. <laughs> and I like that. And then, of course, we need to talk about the fact that in addition to, similar to the original movie, that this movie relied on a few famous cameos like Ozzy Osbourne and Al Roker, uh, just like the original had the Larry Kings of the world popping up. Um, this movie does feature uh, an extended run of cameos by as many people from the original film as either were available or agreed, which means virtually everyone in the original cast except Harold Ramis, who of course is already gone, and Rick Moranis, who doesn't really work anymore. Yeah, and And I don't think has really ever... Uh, agreed to do anything after a certain point when he retired. Didn't his wife die too? And yeah, and he, he had kinda... there was some very sad thing that yeah. happened in his life, and it kind of changed him. So yeah, and he and, just kind of that's his choice. Yeah, he disappeared, and it's really sad. And he was always a joy to see in things, but yeah, that's the way it is. So he wasn't going to do it. But we get cameos from Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, uh, and of course Bill Murray, and. I think we should talk about Bill Murray first. Over on that other podcast we do, uh, we would probably spend some time chatting about Zombieland. Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget how you feel. I think the Bill Murray cameo in Zombieland, it's interesting how many people love that sequence in Zombieland and say it's their favorite part. I think that's the one thing in that movie I would cut completely. <laughs> uh, I think it's just, it doesn't fit the rest of the movie and it feels really uncomfortable to watch. But I forget, do you like the Bill Murray cameo? Uh, it's all right. I, yeah, okay. I, I think it went on for too long. If anything, it could have been a quick little cameo and moved yeah. on. But. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's that. So it's also interesting then that he turns up in this, and he really has the most substantial cameo of any of the original team, uh, which makes sense. Uh, and he plays a thoroughly unlikable, although it's a totally different kind of character, one would almost argue Walter Peckish kind of figure as a guy who doesn't believe the Ghostbusters are real and wants to debunk them, Martin Heiss. And he's smarmy, he's disgusting, he's annoying. He has the only really... Uh, completely over-the-top definitive death in the film 
that seems so uh, unfair in a sense, regardless of how awful he was and, and rotten, and they just kind of, no, well, he's dead. <laughs> and it makes sense because you hate him so much, you're kind of satisfied to see it happen. I've seen a lot of people say that they disliked extremely Bill Murray's cameo. They thought it was awful, uh, that it was uh, insulting to him and, and and the respect for the original. So let's go over a few things. First of all, he agreed to do it. Bill Murray, the guy who answers his own phone when people ask him to do projects and who stays away and sometimes doesn't show up until the day of shooting, the guy who can barely commit to anything because that's the way he is. And, he a, and a guy who has actually taken scripts that have been sent to him from well-known people and chucked them in the trash. So Yes, and he agreed to do this. He saw value in being Martin Heiss in this film. I even saw him on one of the talk shows where he said he agreed to do it because he thought these four women were so incredibly funny and that the project was good. And that's all you need to know. But if you need more, there's also the fact that, let's be fair here, as much as we grew up with the character and we liked him, Venkman's kind of an ass. He's completely an iconoclastic character. He has no respect for anybody or anything, really, except maybe his teammates. Uh, his pursuit of Dana in the first movie, while it might seem romantic from a certain perspective at a certain age, is really excessively creepy. Um, and he's just not a very nice guy, but he's a cool guy in the, in the mold of Bill Murray cool characters that we grew up with and liked. But cool doesn't necessarily translate into good person either. He's an interesting character, but he's kind of a weird, creepy kind of asshole at the same time. And so that fits him playing a character like Martin Heiss. At the same time, it seems all the more appropriate that the guy who's the icon of the Ghostbusters film should turn up as the guy who's serving as the antagonist for the very concept of this new team. I thought it was appropriate. It was a nice comedic twist to have him be this sort of monstrous, unlikable character. And I think he probably took a lot of glee in the idea that he was going to be killed like a cartoon and taken out like that. And I think that shows respect for the original in just the fact that he did it, and he must have enjoyed doing it. So I don't have any problem with it at all. I actually, I when I first heard that they were going to be doing cameos, uh, do you remember the, the <laughs> it was terrible. Did you, do you remember in the original film, they had cut out those cameos where, well, I say cameos, but those bums that uh, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray played that were supposed to be in the park? Oh, yeah. So did you yeah. ever see, watch that sequence that goes on for about that. 40 hours? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's I awful. almost thought they were going to actually resurrect those two characters. <laughs> and have them play those guys again, which I think would because have been let me tell you about the ghosts again. <laughs> you gotta understand about the ghosts. <laughs> yeah, well, Bill Murray was basically doing his Caddyshack, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just, yeah. just doing that kind of thing all over again, you know. And Aykroyd, I don't know what the I hell Aykroyd, Aykroid was doing. doing. <laughs> you gotta understand what the ghosts is. It's like, yeah, there and there's proof, if any be needed, that sometimes what we see as classic films or films we love come just that close to being a disaster. <laughs> if that had been in there, granted a lot of the rest of that movie would still have been great, but I'm sure we'd all be sitting here all these years later going, my God, if only they'd cut the park scene. Yeah. You know, that's just that destroys the whole thing. Every time I watch the movie, I got to cut past the cut park scene, <laughs> but they didn't. So, you know, that's fine. 
and and uh, like even you said like the like the one little race joke in this that feels like it's a little too on the nose and and uh unnecessary it's like well yeah but even even the best stuff has its moments there are a few things that that might have worked i i do think like i was saying that dance sequence it feels like they made the right choice there and not making that a part of the main plot at the end yeah. but using it as an end credits play out it makes the end credit sequence a lot of fun However, it is a little weird to have the char- have that huge crowd gear up for a dance and then give- not give us a dance. <laughs> and then not- <laughs> Maybe, hopefully, the Blu-ray will give us a branching opportunity where we'll be oh, able to see go. the whole dance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I did like that Chris Hemsworth got to be this absolutely uh, bizarre. <laughs> it, it, here's the other thing too: is that a lot of people are complaining about. Well, sure, they made the Kevin character like a dumb male to like you know flip the script on the standard kind of depiction of women and those it's like no that's not even a legitimate argument either because he's not just a dumb you know blockhead kind of guy he's weird <laughs> he's just one of the weirdest strangest characters i've seen in years and i i have a great deal of respect for hemsworth because uh i've certainly gone on record as saying that as much as i love all the marvel films thor is one of my least favorite characters so i like him in the ensemble but when he's on his own doing the thor movies it may be some of the least stuff they're good but i don't necessarily think that character is as compelling as the others and he's this strong stern you know classical heroic figure and then you see him turn up in some of the other stuff he does where it shows he's got a bizarre sense of humor and apparently a lot of the stuff in this was him improving. The fact that Kevin's glasses don't have lenses in them was something that came up on the day and they just rolled with it. And he rubbed his eyes as a joke and they started going <laughs> with the rest of that. Um, the whole thing about his dog being named Mike Hat, he he made that whole thing up. Uh, and so a lot of his stuff is all improv on the set. And he's insane. There was a nice little parallel of something that he did with to the original film. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in the original film, I've always loved the gag where um, Ray says, "Shh, do you smell that? <laughs> you, have you seen? You remember that? I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna or, say. It's like I, I think he says, "Shh, do you smell something?" Or so, it's, it's, it's something along those lines. It's like he gets his senses mixed up. I may be completely screwing that line up. But it just was funny that then it had Chris Hemsworth like holding his eyes and saying that there was a loud noise. Oh yeah! It's oh, like I see the what you mean. Were screwed up again. I so see what was, you mean. Yeah, it seemed like a nice. I mean, a very, very subtle little nod. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but no. But then he does it more than once. He's constantly rubbing his eyes when there's sound or something else going on. <laughs> he did. I know he did it more than once because yeah. I remember that it's like a running thing. No, that's right. That's true. He's insane. <laughs> He's just absolutely insane character. It seems like his brain is broken from the moment he shows yeah. up. There's also kind of the nice touch of he's goofy from the moment he arrives, and he's the one that's taken over by Rowan. And it's a little bit like, but very dissimilar, but a little bit like Rick Moranis being, you know, possessed in the first one and behaving not necessarily villainously, but just sort of goofy and endearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so we get like a weird aspect of that, but. Except Hemsworth's for Kevin character. doesn't really seem to care much for the girls at all. There's oh, like no, no not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. And and he's just crazy in a whole other different way. And he's like that as himself. It's like before. a ghost holding a hot dog thing. <laughs> yeah. This is what, she, what does Melissa McCarthy say? Is it, this is more cerebral. Well, you're more cerebral than we at first thought or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, so, oh, we were talking about cameos. So, uh, Bill Murray has the largest one. And that makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, I was waiting the whole movie for Sigourney Weaver to show up, and although it was an end credit thing, I like that it turns out that she's Holtzman's mentor, and that was a cute bit. Short, but I mean, it was nice. Ernie Hudson, in in a sense, I feel, gets like the best cameo in the movie and the most respect, because out of all of the random cameos of the original cast, he's actually related. He's, Les- he's Leslie Jones, Patty's uncle. So I kind of like that, because he's the source of the hearse and the car in this one. And uh, and gets to be like sort of the button on the end of the film where they finally get the firehouse. Which, by the way, earlier in the movie when they do the firehouse scene and they're actually inside, I assume that was all rebuilt and not necessarily... They shot this in Massachusetts and, and elsewhere. Um, so I assume that was rebuilt or recreated, but it was dead on accurate. It just looked exactly right. Um, Annie Potts, of course, had to be on a phone. <laughs> so they put her at the hotel desk and it was nice to see her. And it's basically... That's her. Uh, and Dan Aykroyd, I loved as the cabbie. Now, there's another thing. Early on when this movie is being made, word leaked that Dan Aykroyd's cameo is going to be as a cabbie that gets to say, I ain't afraid of no ghost. And of course, as we all know, that was never actually said in the film, but it was just a catchphrase that came about as a, uh, uh, from Ray Parker Jr.'s theme. Um, and just to digress again, Another thing that struck terror into our hearts is when we heard the Fallout Boy, uh, Missy Elliott, uh, new version of the theme from this movie, which, by the way, I didn't think sounded all that good when I heard it. But when you hear all the music in this movie, just the way music played such a substantial role in the original film, I thought all the music and all the variations on the theme in this also worked beautifully. I had no problem with any of it. I think the theme on its own, though, is not very good. (laughs) No, no, no. But I will say I was absolutely delighted that when the movie starts and does that lead into the credits, like in the original films, they used the original theme. Yeah. No alteration at all, and it was wonderful. Uh, And it is the final track. The original theme is the final track on the soundtrack album that's out now. I looked at that. And by the way, just as a final note, if anybody wants to just uh, uh, laugh for a few minutes at the, the sheer... Uh, sadness that is the Ray Parker Jr. career, please seek out the Key and Peele sketch about Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> and all of the movie themes he didn't get to do for various other movies. That's a joy to watch. <laughs> I just, I had to go see that as soon as we were done with the movie. But so Dan Aykroyd's cameo, when they were doing it, we heard that he was going to say, I ain't afraid of no ghost. The leak included the fact that Kristen Wiig's character was apparently going to tell him something like, you realize that's a double negative, don't you? And the reaction that happened online was, oh, great, so you're putting in an original Ghostbuster to have him say the original catchphrase so that he can be corrected by the new character and denigrated. And everybody was reacting very negatively about that. I have to admit that even myself, I thought, well, I don't feel like I'm going to like take to the streets with like a torch and a pitchfork. But it is a little odd to give one of them a cameo and then use it as a way of like putting the character down. That just seemed a little odd. But then you see him in the movie. They didn't use that gag at all. Now, I actually wonder if that was shot and cut or if that was an early version that then didn't get used. But I love this cameo because he does get to say it. It's the, it's the punchline on his scene. And on top of it, for no discernible reason except the slight meta undercurrent that this is Ray Stance talking, he knows that it's a Class 5 vapor they're talking about at <laughs> one point. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Except like, how that- would anyone know that? <laughs> it's just a Class 5 vapor. It's just- 
Although, that brings up something we talked about when we walked out of the movie that I would still maintain as much as we enjoyed this film. I do still think that it ultimately would have been better if they had just done this as a continuation of the same universe. With very few tweaks, there's no reason this movie couldn't have said maybe even that one of them probably Kristen Wiig's character would have been the best choice, was a daughter of one of the originals. Her whole wonderful backstory scene about the old lady at the foot of her bed, for instance, which I loved that scene, that could have been an experience as a result of being the daughter of a Ghostbuster, being you know, exposed to that kind of paranormal activity. There's There's so little in this movie that couldn't have connected that when you have moments like Aykroyd knowing it's Class 5, things like that, we even thought of this idea like, you know, given the way uh, Americans behave and what a short memory we have and how susceptible everyone is to being told things that aren't true, it could have easily been explained away that everything that happened in the 80s that people were told was just an elaborate hoax and that nothing had ever happened in New York City. And that would have made a lot of sense. I would have bought that instantly. And I think that's the one misstep. I understand their reasons and that ultimately they probably thought for business reasons, maybe more than anything else, it might have been a wiser move to start with a clean slate. But I don't really see why it couldn't have just been uh, a sequel uh, in, in that world and hand it to this team. And I think ultimately it would have worked for everyone, but we'll never know. So, Well, you can, always, you can always just assume that the original group was captured by the government and brainwashed and then reinserted <laughs> into society in new roles. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and and the cabbie being a cabbie he's just starting to remember a lot of his various you know tobin mm -hmm. spirit guide information yep you were asking me actually if i'd seen tobin spirit guide or anything i i don't know i haven't seen anybody online talking about any of that either but i can't imagine they wouldn't have thrown in a few little nods on the set somewhere but i didn't see anything yeah i kind of need to see it again and look for stuff like that see if there's a mm -hmm. spades catalog on the shelf somewhere or something like that and if anybody yeah. out there has seen that, <laughs> Tobin Spirit Guide, Spades Catalog, something like that, let us know. <laughs> so another thing, and this is leading to a question I got to ask you. Another thing that I really enjoyed about this was I thought the design of the film was beautiful. Um, particularly the, the climactic sequence when they're out on the street fighting all the ghosts. I thought, the, you know, there was early on a lot of people were like, oh, are the ghosts all going to look like Haunted Mansion glowing? But I thought ultimately in the movie, I thought everything looked great. I thought the look and design of the ghosts and the various creatures, the balloon Macy's ghosts were awesome. Getting Stay Puffed in there was, a, was nicely done. Uh, I thought all the ghosts looked great. I thought the effects looked great. The, the greenish motif with the sky opening up. I've, I said this when we were leaving the movie. It may be a horrible thing to admit to because it, it has become a go-to cliche for a lot of blockbusters, but give me a movie where the climactic sequence involves a hole opening up in the sky and the end of the world, and I'm there. That's, <laughs> that's like one of my favorite kind of apocalyptic ending thing. I enjoy it if they pull it off well, and I think this was one of the most beautiful-looking well-designed, exciting-looking apocalyptic sequences that I've seen. And since it's Ghostbusters, and it has that sort of slight goofy edge to it all, none of it had to look real. And so I think it's also some of the most effective CGI I've seen in movies in recent years, because it had, not quite cartoonish, but a vaguely overly colored and vibrant look to it, and I thought it was beautiful. And that leads to 
And by the way, that's one of the things I loved Holtzman's like one woman show at the end where she's got her guns and she's fighting all those. I could have taken 30 minutes of that, but that what we got was excellent. But um, it all leads up to a climactic scene that I also thought was an extremely clever idea that the original didn't use in that way, which was to say that the opening of this gaping hole into like this hellish other dimension could itself become basically a massive ghost trap. I thought that was a brilliant concept, that they're turning that into the biggest ghost trap in the world, basically. But it also involved a side thing, which was a reference to the original film franchise, which is our old friend Slimer. Uh, the hot dog eating ghost that slimed Bill Murray in the first film and in the sequel and subsequent cartoons became an icon of the Ghostbusters franchise. And Slimer's back and he's got a girl and he's got some buddies and they grab the Ghostbusters hearse, the Ecto-1 in this film, take it for a joyride. And what I thought was kind of a slightly meta commentary, it felt like Slimer kind of came in from the original franchise knowing that he was from the original movie and not really part of this reality. And I couldn't help but wonder if the fact that they joy took a joyride around the city in a circle and then were the ones to drive the car into the gap and cause the nuclear reaction or at least deliver the nuclear uh, reactor there for the conclusion almost felt like Slimer doing his part to save the world. Now, having brought up some of this, I found out that you hate Slimer. So <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm not saying I'm a fan or like, like I, like I love Slimer more than anything else, but I'm very curious because we both love the original movie and I know you've seen it a million times, but I, I want to know the story here. Why, why do you dislike that uh, character in particular? Well, you know, my thing is, is in the original film, it was just the spud. There was no Slimer. Of course, that came much later yeah. uh, when it became this, you know, cutesy little character for kids. Um, mm -hmm. I always thought, like, the, the real Ghostbusters cartoon, of which I'm also an enormous fan, uh, took the cutesy route. It was just the, he was the, you know, the goofball that would cause trouble or, you know, open a rift or whatever was going to happen so that the Ghostbusters would get involved. So I never much cared for that as a character. I think appearing in the first film, and boy, I really could re I wish I could remember his his designation. Like, what what is his category? Oh, I don't remember for sure. <laughs> but as a spud, he's fine. Um, but as soon as they have him playing around and driving a car and having a girlfriend with a wig and a bow in her hair or whatever <laughs> was going on and lipstick, I think it took it a little bit too far. And it's one of those things where I, I really hate when you get that thing from, it's like an executive decision of, well, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. You know what? Okay. They didn't have that in the first movie. The, the Slimer blob only appears a couple times in that first film and it's not played for, for, you know, cutesiness. Um, and yet as a kid seeing the original Ghostbusters, I love the movie. It didn't need to have a little cutie thing for the kids. So mm -hmm. I, I think it kind of it's a little bit of pandering. So when I saw it, it was cute when it first appeared, and I thought, oh, that's really nice. And then even when he took off in the car, I was okay with that. But as soon as they introduced a girlfriend, <laughs> it started to go a little bit too far for my taste. Okay, well, that's I mean that's all fair and it makes total sense. I I have to say I really enjoyed that part for the reason I just described. I kind of felt like. And I might be reading too much into it, but it almost felt like Slimer knew that he was there by executive order. <laughs> and it was just like, well, I guess I'm going to have to drive this thing into the hole then and do that. Um, but no, I, I follow it. In fact, the other thing, I remember at the time being bothered by his appearance in 2 because he was so redesigned in 2. Mm -hmm. 
because of the 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 cartoon had happened and they needed to make him the funny sidekick that Tully finds in the firehouse and then he actually doesn't he drives him downtown into no. he drives him in the bus I, honestly um, I, my memories of that second film are not very good I know I I know we didn't even want to talk about it but <laughs> I I seem to like aspects of two a lot more than you two I, I I would never say that I think it's great the thing that my good friend um and Zombie Mania co-author Andy Hirschberger and I have talked about for many years is when you watch the thing we most say about two, and I guess we'll leave it at this, is um, that when you watch the first Ghostbusters, it came out in 84, and we both have often talked about how it comes at the tail end of a period of time, like around the mid to late 70s and into the early 80s, where some of those big movies that we all grew up with really look like feature films the widescreen, the particular kind of film stock, the grain. There's a look to the first Ghostbusters that absolutely says theatrical feature film. Then you watch Ghostbusters 2 and it's like, oh, TV movie. Mm -hmm. It's flat. The lighting's terrible. It doesn't feel like it's really playing to a widescreen anymore. The stock's all different. The quality just takes a nosedive. And so for that alone... There's there's no matching the two at all, and yet there are bits that I like, like Peter McNichol and some of the other stuff. They're they're little things. There's but... only one thing I like in that movie. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to know what that was. <laughs> it's just Egon's experiments in the beginning are hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take away the puppy. <laughs> well, I do like his one line where you know, he said, "Didn't you ever have things as a child like a slinky?" We had a slinky, but I straightened it. Yeah, he's good. But yeah, he's he's. Uh, I guess it's worth also saying he's very sorely missed. He went he he went kind of fast and sudden, uh, and it was a real. Like I said, it was really kind of the 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 final breaking point as far as anything happening with the original team. By the way, I looked it up while we were talking, and we'll also have to confirm, and maybe some listeners might confirm for us. I think, in fact, the Slimer thing might actually be the the reference that Dan Aykroyd's making as the cabbie. Because Slimer is a class five full roaming vapor. Oh, okay. And I think that's he says class five. I know that for certain. But he might say the whole thing in the cab scene. So even <laughs> more I, reason to see the film again. Yeah, I got no issue with that. As if there isn't many. Yeah, uh, yeah I just uh, I I just want to watch the whole final sequence again and all the fighting. I, and that's another thing. Even though we're fans and we love the Ghostbusters, one thing that any fan has to admit is that. Even in the first, well, first movie and sequel, that sort of doesn't exist for some people. It's fine. <laughs> um, there isn't a lot of usage of the actual paraphernalia. Like the proton packs are always exciting and interesting. Not just the joke that they're carrying the particle accelerator on their back, but that it's just a cool idea that they've created scientific gadgetry to fight ghosts. But you don't see a lot of it, and it isn't used consistently throughout the film. There are bits and pieces. And this movie, and I don't think in, in a negative way or in like a way that seems to be pandering to merchandise, because another thing is that we went to a few targets afterwards and discovered that just about any merchandise related to this movie has already been shuffled away, is almost all gone, or put in clearance aisles, and uh, you can't get any kind of stuff. They put out, and oh, I have to mention this. This is a movie featuring a team of four women that that should not matter except in the sense that it does provide an entire generation of kids with a wonderfully positive image of them being equally capable of just happening to be a team that does all this action-adventure stuff like any other team, like a male team would do. 
uh, in the past. And yet, when we went to look for toys, and one of the things that struck me, and what I was saying earlier about this movie was I loved all the gadgetry. I loved the fact that they went beyond the proton pack, and they have like the sidearms, and they have the proton glove, and it's all this fun stuff. All of it feels like it's a commercial for merchandise, to the point where like when they're doing the alleyway tests, I almost thought, oh, well, of course they're putting in the alleyway test scene because they want to make sure the kids see all the stuff that they're going to go get in the stores. Well, guess what? None of it is merchandise available in stores. Hmm. They did not make any toys for the Proton Glove or the other things. They made a little gun thing that looks nothing like the Proton Guns that Kate McKinnon has. Uh, it's just an ugly little thing that looks like it came out of the 1970s with the Ghostbusters logo slapped on a white plastic thing. Uh, it's just awful. They did make proton packs, however. Really nice-looking little proton packs for kids. And the box features three pictures of a kid wearing the proton pack. Three pictures. Two on the back, one... Two on the front, one on the back. Every one of those pictures is of a boy. I don't understand this for one second. (laughs) Even if you want to be a total asshole... And say that, oh, well, you know, it's a, the boys are more likely to play with these, which is, of course, is crap. Even if you want to do that, let's just look at it from the pure logic of the film itself. There isn't a male Ghostbuster in this movie. It makes no sense for a tie-in piece of merchandise to this film to feature someone using the proton pack that isn't female. Because that makes sense. What's also interesting about the merchandise and the consistent packaging of all of it is that pictures of the four main characters like you know you look at lots of other ghostbusters stuff from the past or merchandise related to almost any other film you always see like pictures or photorealistic illustrations of the main characters like as part of a logo or like a consistent dress across packaging you won't see them on any of it oh my god really nothing no their pictures are not included on any of the merchandise only the ghostbusters you know, no ghost logo, and that's it. Because God forbid we want to acknowledge this team in any way. I this stuff makes me legitimately angry, more so because I feel like at least my eyes are open and I'm seeing the logic of it all. Well, and I thought this battle had been fought and won over the last <laughs> few years. There's been a I constant know. outrage about them not marketing enough, you know, female characters for you know Marvel or DC or whatever, and right. suddenly these oh, and even Star Wars. Not yes. re- not putting Ray in the box, you know, and things like that. And now you have a movie where there every single main character who is the heroic character is a woman, and they still couldn't manage to put a girl in the box or feature any of the main characters in a picture. Hey, I got you some Ghostbusters action figures. Oh, what did you get? Well, I got you the mayor and Kevin. <laughs> well, they do have action figures of the team. Good. Uh, they do have that. So you Do can't, they look even remotely like them? Yeah, they're pretty good. The action figures are pretty good. The one thing we lamented was that they're really highly priced. They're about $20 a piece because each one of them gets uh, – they package in a piece of a larger Rowan figure that you can build, which you can also buy separately. So hmm. it's purely a, a cynical money grab to throw those in, thus hiking the price by another $5 or so. Uh, and that actually did discourage uh, us from picking one of them up. Because it's like I don't, you know, I don't want to pay basically like an extra five dollars for a hunk of plastic we weren't going to use because we weren't going to get them all. Just wanted Holtzman. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Natalie was like, "Nope, not doing that." So and and uh, so yeah, I mean they do have figures. 
They have an awesome Funko Pop uh, figures uh, for all of them. Um, but it's the it's the fact that the boxing doesn't include them, and I just think most egregiously the Proton Pack goes out of its way to have boys wearing the Proton Pack, just like they don't in the film in any way. I could see some toy executives saying, "Well, you see, now the the audience knows that it's it's all women in the film, so we have to show that a boy can use it. See, oh, that's why yeah. we want that ribbon." Yeah, all kids matter when it comes to Proton Packs. <laughs> Yeah, why not show like a girl and a boy like back to back with their proton packs? Yes. Something like that. That would have been totally fine. All right, fine. yeah. That way maybe it would shut that guy up and yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, even that. But nope. Nope. So it's very sad. And and just while we're on this thread and, and not to give it much more attention than it deserves, I think, although certainly worth noting, and I know you had said we definitely wanted to at least address this, probably the ugliest aspect, if anything could be said to be uglier than the rest of it, I guess this dish certainly qualifies. The ugliest aspect of all the controversy and backlash and and hatred and negativity aimed at a movie that has turned out to just be a delightful summer blockbuster that well-deserves sequels and celebration for being great fun was the absolutely unwarranted, horrific, racist attack on Leslie Jones from the film uh, on Twitter who um, just a few days ago as we're recording this was targeted specifically by a large group of people uh, and then some of whom who were either genuinely racist or as as was explained to me afterward uh, also many of them just provocateurs who just delight in harming other people regardless of whether or not they actually uh, have the personal conviction of being a racist or a sexist. They just love to torture people. So there's a whole army of people all targeting Leslie Jones and sending just some of the ugliest, most disgusting stuff you can imagine, sending pictures to her with nooses and with pictures of people aiming guns at her, telling her to kill herself or that she should die, calling her by names that I'm not going to repeat, sending lots of pictures of her animal pictures that you know make allusions to her that I also won't go into further detail, but obviously you can know exactly what I'm talking about. And most of it uh, specifically um, orchestrated by one particular excuse for a human being who, go- who goes by Milo, uh, who has now been banned from Twitter and probably is celebrating that very fact because it's just gotten him even more coverage, and so we'll stop talking about him there. But it was so depressing to watch because she was trying to fight back. And, you know, there are two schools of thought about all this, whether you actually try to fight back or you just, you know, silent and, you know, ignore it. She tried to fight back at every single one of them. But she just lost heart over the course of a day, and she ended a day a few days ago saying she was leaving Twitter. She has come back, and I think hopefully uh, bolstered a little bit by uh, extraordinary response that shows that while there are horrible things happening in the world and horrible people making them happen, there's a lot of of good too and a lot of positive uh, energy. And there was also a love for Leslie J hashtag that was going around. Um, And so she's back and, uh, you know, I'm sure other horrible things will happen, but uh, hopefully we get past that. But there's just no excuse for these kind of things. It's the the worst tendencies of what passes for humanity. And the idea that a movie like this, which is just, you know, joy and excitement and fun, and and she's a great part of it, and, and there's no reason to torture anybody for any reason, is just a horrible thing to see. It was very demoralizing. But um, 
But yeah, now that's become a part of the story of this movie, too. I hope it doesn't dissuade her from doing the next one, because I want to see this whole team back, and I want to see them triumph over this kind of thing by continuing and, and keeping their saga going. They need to now, I think. Well, and especially because there were so many asshole uh, public personas like uh, movie reviewers and stuff on YouTube who were sent, putting their foot down and saying, I'm not even going to review this movie on my show and mm-hmm. all this kind of crap, which all that did for me was I just unsubscribed from all their channels and yeah. I have no interest in ever seeing any of their stuff again. Yeah. And they made this decision based upon like a trailer. Yeah, absolutely. There was never any reason. And, and like we were talking at the very beginning of this, the, the initial trailers made me wonder if this movie was going to be any good. But it wasn't going to dissuade me from seeing the movie and having an informed opinion about it. Um, the idea of just passing judgment without doing that makes no sense at all. And I think a lot of them, too, have probably seen the film and enjoyed it, but they can't, now they can't. admit it. Yeah, yeah, now they can't say. Because that's yeah part of their brand is being that bastard that said they weren't going to do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All the more reason why at a time where, you know, Doctor of the Dead is... Uh, been a lot of our focus, and and um, we've we've tried to fit in some G to V stuff, particularly recently. But like you know, we've had some ideas of things we wanted to do, but it's a little more sporadic. All the more reason, I think, that both of us are really energized to do this one and say, look, you know, may not be the largest voices in the crowd, but we want to weigh in and say that this was a wonderful movie, and and that we had a lot of fun, and we're people that love the original movie, and this doesn't hurt anybody. No. And, and and to be per, you know per, perfectly honest, the movie's not perfect. No, but it was enjoyable as hell. <laughs> no, it's got flaws. I mean, it's a summer film. If, it's a, I had a blast. I I think I'm even very much erring on the side of positivity because of the fact that it got so trounced. But it's like there's stuff that you could criticize. I mean, what I think they're minor for the most part. Like I I did feel that the pacing in the beginning was a little slow, and it did make me worry a little bit. But then once things really got rolling, it never felt like it slowed down again, and I didn't mind. And then the only other thing that I can think of that was like really an issue was I just would have liked a little more backstory and justification for who Rowan was and why he was doing what he was doing. Yeah. It, it was vague about him. Although, again, not necessarily clear on how much of it was before or after, a lot of Rowan's role in this feels like a commentary on the very kind of people that were against the film, so vocally online. And some of that, given the fact that they must have been working on this well before any of that happened, must be coincidental. But in a way, I almost felt like, well, he's kind of a cipher, but I feel like I can fill in a lot of the gaps because I kind of know the kind of person they're talking about here. Yeah. And that's all right. And it was funny, I have to say also, that when I was watching the film, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'd, maybe I'd, I'd like to l- know a little bit more about these characters. But then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, in the original Ghostbusters, we really didn't know anything about these guys. No, no. So I think we actually got more character development in this movie. I think so. And I think if I were given a choice between seeing Dan Aykroyd nearly get a blowjob by a ghost in a montage... <laughs> Or hearing Kristen Wiig do a very nice, dramatic, and emotional sequence in which she talks about seeing a dead woman at the foot of her bed that inspired her entire career. I know which one I think is more successful. And by the way, mm-hmm. yes, it's the Kristen Wiig scene. That's the more successful. <laughs> so, And that was a major piece of backstory that then anchors everything for all of them. Well, yeah, and also her, her arc is really nice, too, because, you know, in the beginning – 
yeah, she's got her academic aspirations or whatever. But uh, once she realizes that the ghost busting thing is really where she needs to be, she comes alive. Mm -hmm. She's she really is like finally enjoying her life. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really sweet. And I do think you're right that there's more here than there was in the original. The original was informed by all of us going in to see the movie because we already knew Bill Murray from Meatballs and Caddyshack and Stripes. <laughs> and and basically knowing that what we were getting... It's like Peter Venkman, please. He's not Peter Venkman, he's Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... There's it's, no character, There's really. not a character, it's just <laughs> Bill Murray. We all know that. That's like I was talking before. You know, Venkman's not like this great heroic figure. He's He does things that are good, but he's still Bill Murray. And, and that's why we knew him already. We knew Dan Aykroyd because although he could play very different sort of characters, like, you know, Elwood and Blues Brothers, you know, would meet Ray Stans and not have a lot to talk to, <laughs> to him about. But there was a great deal of her, his persona that was also influenced by everything we already knew. Even Harold Ramis with uh, SCTV and with some of the writing he'd done, if you knew him. So their characters really didn't rely on any kind of backstory. And and here we get that. And also, too, these people are coming from the same kind of trenches of Saturday Night Live and other comedic work that they've done. Every one of them is someone – I mean, quite frankly, given Melissa McCarthy's career, whatever you think about some of her other films, she's quite a powerhouse to suddenly be just one member of a four-person ensemble in this. And rather than take over and be the lead – She's just part of the group. Yeah, well, I mean, un yeah, unlike the original film where people were going to see Bill Murray, I don't think anybody was going to see the new Ghostbusters to see Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, they they very much <laughs> took a part of. You now we're we're a quarter of this team. Yeah, and they did a great job of that. And all really nice characters. Too. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, even going back to the point about you know where there are things to criticize. Yeah, it's not perfect, but but. Uh, I can't honestly think of a single thing that I think is all that earth-shattering in terms of a complaint. I thought it was enjoyable. I thought there were a lot of great jokes. There were only a few times I thought there were some jokes that were a little lowbrow that I don't particularly enjoy, but they weren't that big a deal, you know, and they're probably going to get a laugh from a kid. So that's there for poo -poo, that. Poo-poo jokes. Yeah, you know, that's fine. Well, you know, another thing, too, that we should mention real quick is that one of the, the things, and it's funny because the reaction from so many people has been very, very positive in this regard, but a lot of people are celebrating the fact that there really wasn't a romantic angle in this movie at all. That's right. I mean, you know, they kind of ogle Kevin a little bit, but that's just goofy. Yeah, it's totally goofy. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. That's something that the first one absolutely had. Yeah. That this one completely avoids. There's none of that at all. Well, there might have been. I guess we should mention one other thing that's important to bring up because it fits within the controversy uh, aspect of things. Um, Kate McKinnon's character is gay. Um, anybody surprised by that? No? <laughs> Good. Holtzman's gay. Um, she did everything she could within the constraints of what was set up for her to try to make that clear. But apparently, it was an edict from Sony that uh, told the team uh, not to lean into that, not to make that explicit, which apparently they intended to do. But they were told not to do it because Sony felt uncomfortable with the idea of one of the Ghostbusters being gay. This is 2016, ladies and gentlemen. And after everything we just said about Kate McKinnon and what an absolute delight it is to watch her going crazy on screen, the idea that that's a problem is just inexplicable. But that's what happened. 
So, you know, there there is an element here that there might have been a little romantic thing because she also is playing the idea that she has uh, a bit of a crush and uh, was, you know, like leaning toward more of a relationship with, with one of them, but they couldn't deal with that in any direct way and they couldn't really play on it at all. So she just did the little nod or a wink or a thing like that and that's it. And that part is particularly sad too, but it's there. And who knows, maybe in a sequel or other things, there'll be the opportunity for them to be a bit looser about that. But we'll see. And that does it for this episode of the G2V Podcast. Find this and all our other shows, including Doctor of the Dead at g2vpodcast.com or at itunes.com slash g2v. And thanks for listening. But it makes me feel good.